All right, we are in the midst of a series on marriage, finding the missing pieces. Um, it's going much slower than I thought it would. That just is a nice way of saying it's expanding as we go here. So, uh, you know, we'll see how, how much it expands. I do have a plan. It just keeps getting changed. So, um, as I prepared for this morning's message, I was reminded of something that happened to me, goodness, probably around seven years ago. There was a, it was a dark night, it was raining, and it was about 8 p.m. in the middle of November, or at the early, early November 2006. I had been up in Canada for a week-long intensive class, and I was on my way back. I crossed the border, and I was just lost in my own thoughts of the week, and I was fatigued, and I was looking forward to getting home to being with my wife and my family. I crossed the border, and I motored on down I-5, and it wasn't real long, but as I drove to south on I-5, there was some road construction, so they rerouted us around uh, the construction through using side streets. And uh, so I get back on the I-5, and as I'm going down the I-5, again, just lost in my thoughts, I had sort of a deja vu experience. And I looked around, and I thought, this countryside looks incredibly familiar. And then within a mile or so, I looked up, and there was a sign announcing the border crossing just a couple miles ahead. And I thought, I have no idea what happened. Uh, but somehow, I'd gotten turned around, and I was actually going north when I was going south. And Kim would say, Martin, that's not the only time that has happened. <laughs> I just get lost in my thoughts. Now, it's one thing when you're driving. It's another thing when you're married, and you, you suddenly you're going one direction, at least you thought you were going in one direction, but you look around and you think, wow, I've got this vague sense that I'm heading in the wrong direction in my marriage. And I believe that over t after 25 years of experience in ministry and working with couples, one thing that I've discovered in other people's marriages, and sometimes at points, even in my own marriage, that I'm heading in the wrong direction. It sometimes happens as a result of just this vague sense of, wow, something's broken here, something's wrong, and sometimes I'm just totally oblivious to it, and God knocks me upside the head with a two-by-four. But too many marriages are heading in the wrong direction, and sometimes we don't even realize it until it's too late. This series, I'm looking at finding the missing pieces, or the maybe pieces that you didn't even know were there. The first week I dealt with the missing piece of the divine covenant and understanding just what it is that we were, we were entering into when we stood before God and we stood before our spouse and the community of faith and we said, I will. What is that all about? And we looked at that and just not so much how did we experience it, but also how did God experience that? You know, God, marriage is about God's idea. It's about His institution. It's one of three institutions He ordained. 
at the very beginning. And so when we enter into it, whether we realize it or not, we enter into his household, his rules, and we don't have the right to redefine it. We can live in ignorance of it. We can ignore sort of the rules of the household, and we can break them, but eventually they will break us. And we may call it all kinds of other reasons as to why things are broken, but it's because we did not honor the format, we did not honor the framework that God established. And that we are responsible for and that we were indeed created for. And there's a lot more that can be said regarding that, but I will move on. So the first missing piece was what? The divine covenant. Second missing piece, does anybody remember? I didn't preach on that. That may be a missing piece. Done. That's not what I said last week, Stan. All right, what did I talk about last week? Mutual submission. All right, so what's the second missing piece according to Martin? Mutual submission according to Stan. Fear the Lord, all right? Who's right? I am, all right? And I looked at the very first verse that, that sort of establishes the continuity of thought in Ephesians chapter 5, which really, kind of, which really creates the framework for this whole relationship. And Paul writes this, Submit to one another. And we looked at how that term, that idea, the concept of submit fleshed out means I choose to renounce my self-interest so that I can willingly and eagerly serve the needs of another person. And the operative principles there are willingly and eagerly. We don't do it begrudgingly. All right? So I submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. Now this theme sets the whole context for all of marriage, but also what they call the household rules. And that is marriage, and then into chapter 6, the parent-child relationship, and, um, and the, 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 sli- the slave-master relationship. This mutual submission. And it looks very different than what we might think it does. I picked up a book this morning. I'm thinking about going through a group of, with a group of men. And just happened to open it up, and he said, there's this myth of mutual submission. And I looked at it and I thought, and I read it and I thought, dude, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. Now, he may have a right in terms of how he is defining it, but he's not, I don't believe he's defining it correctly. So therefore, that begs the question, what does it look like in this case, because I'm kind of, I'm starting with the men in Ephesians 5 before I start with the women. Okay? I always do this. Because for me, the greater responsibility lies at the feet of men. All right? So what does it look like for a man to submit to his wife out of reverence for Christ? What does it mean for a man to to make that choice, to uh, grab a hold of that self-leadership that we talked about last week, and to actually submit to his wife out of reverence for Christ? What does it look like for him to renounce his own self-interests so that he may serve the interests, in this case, of his wife? Does that mean that he does everything she asks him to do? Is that what it means, ladies? No, it doesn't mean that. 
It doesn't mean that. It means He serves someone else's greater interest in the interest of Christ on behalf of you. He brings, He renounces His own self-interest. We're going to talk about this more in a moment. So that He may minister the presence and the will and the ways of Christ into your life. That's what He does. So Paul writes this in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, each man, right here, right now, from this point forward, make this choice. Is the idea of the text. He's calling us to make a decision. To bring about some action. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The third missing piece that I want to deal with is the missing piece of embracing sacrificial love. Embracing sacrificial love. And I want to say this. Men, you will face no greater challenge than this. I face no greater challenge than this. And it's not because my wife is hard to love, but it requires that I renounce my own self-interests so that, I may re, so that I may serve the needs of another. It calls me to a greater vision, and it helps me understand my greater purpose that God has given to me as a man and as a husband. You know, there's, there's a, a discovery that came out uh, probably about 10, 12 years ago to the uh, project called the Marriage Project. Uh, it was a large, large uh, survey um, uh, regarding marriages in the U.S. And one of the conclusions they came to is this, and it's really they say it's really an old-time conclusion, and is this, that marriage civilizes a man. It calls him into a truer form of what it means to be masculine. Now, why is that? And they discovered this, and they even wrote about it in Psychology Today. But they, they made this statement. He says, it's because of this. It, um, it forces him to look beyond himself. That a man is not necessarily predisposed in his own nature to look out after the interests of another person. Now, it's not that God made him, didn't make him to look out for the needs of another person. But remember what we talked about two weeks ago when the fall came and we imploded? We turned everything in towards us. And so marriage calls man to an, a man to understand his true purpose in light of what God has called him to do and to be as a husband and as a man. It civilizes a man. It calls him to be and do something greater than himself to lay aside his own self-interest. Now that raises the question, does that mean a man cannot be civilized if he is not married? No, it doesn't. But I tell you this, what it does mean is that a man who wants to be civilized and a man who wants to learn the character of what it means to live in mutual submission, to renounce your own self-interest so that you may serve the interests of another, he does that within the context of the body of Christ. You become a servant now. You begin to catalyze and develop that character now before you're ever married, so that when you get married, it's not as much of a shock to the system. 
Okay? That's what it is. So Paul is calling us to live with sacrificial love towards our wife, our wives. Now, there's no way in which we're going to be able to take this at this point in time and say, okay, I'm going to unction it up within me. I'm going to live in a sacrificial way just as Christ loved the church towards you, honey. I don't care how good she is. I don't care how great she is. That's not the precursor. The foundation of this, just as it was with mutual submission, is this. Worship. Worship. I want you guys to remember four words today. The first word is this. Declare. Say declare. Declare means this. I will declare daily whom I will worship. And I emphasize daily because if you don't do it daily, you're going to lose sight of this and you're going to become uncivilized. Okay? We're going to start living for our own self-interests. But this sense of worship, this sense, and I'm not talking about singing songs, I'm talking about bowing our knees before God. That's what it's all about. The object of my worship will shape the actions of my leadership. The object of my worship will shape the actions of my leadership. It will come out if I am worshiping my own self-interest in the sense of making, elevating those to priority, then that's going to come out in how I treat my wife. If I worship my own self-interest, self-interest will, will shape my leadership. This last week, I experienced this. My wife told me to tell lots of stories, so I'm going to. I says, honey, stories take longer. She says, cut, cut content, tell stories. Um, I went to the dentist on uh, last Friday. And it's because I broke a tooth that had a crown on it. And the dentist looked at me and he says, Martin, he says, there's really only one thing we can do that's going to work. And he said, it says, we're going to have to give you an implant. How many of you ever have ever had dental implants before? They're expensive. Four to five thousand dollars. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, I've got a plan. I'll figure it out. So I went home, and as I walked in, Kim got a phone call. Now, Kim is a bookkeeper, a very good one, and very trusted one. And she works like three part-time jobs, two of which are up in Kent. So she gets this phone call from our CPA in downtown Puyallup and said, Kim, this, guy used, this guy's an intimidating dude. He used to be a tax enforcement agent. Not, so he's very intimidating. Believer, but very intimidating believer. So he says, um, Kim, I, I, I lost my assistant, my assistant and my bookkeeper, and uh, I was interviewing these other people, and I realized, you're the one I want. I want you full time. And all of a sudden, within my dear wife, her realism comes up, and she just starts getting really anxious, and she said, if you would have only called me two months ago before I took this job up in Kent where I made a commitment to them that I would stay two, two years. And I'm hearing this conversation. I'm going, but, 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 
Because, you know, I'm thinking, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And I quickly got my calculator out, and I calculated what she would be making. And she says, well, I'll get back to you. Give me until money. He says, fine. So they hung up, and I says, so tell me about it, dear. She says, well, we need to pray. I said, well, tell me about this. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And uh, so we're, we're talking, and she says, you know, but he wants me to work full-time, but I don't want to work full-time. I love working with women, and I love what I'm doing in ministry. I want my life to count for something more than just numbers and cents, you know. And uh, I'm thinking, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. <laughs> and I says, well, honey, you know, baby, um, I think we just ought to pray about it. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Well, you know, we don't want to work, I don't want to work full-time, and not only that, but I told them for two years I would stay up there at this place in Kent. I gave them my word. Well, you didn't really have this as an option at that point in time, and you don't like driving to Kent. Whose self-interest am I pursuing? Mine. And I says, honey, look at it this way. Look at all the money we could save... We could take and just dump all of your income into the, uh, your IRA and, um, and, and just save it for retirement. And not only that, but we could, you know that car that I bought you while you were on the mission trip and I bought it without consulting you for you? You could pay that off <laughs> in a year. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. And she said, but I don't want to work full time. And I gave my word. I am work. I am thinking, Lord, is there any fine print here? And then, as I walked away and thought about it, and I thought, Lord, forgive me, because I am pursuing my own self-interests, my own self-interests. So Saturday, I told her, I says, Honey, I said, I, I don't think that you ought to take that job. I really don't. I said, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Our self-interests get in to our souls and into our minds so easily. And if I am worshiping my self-interest, that will shape my leadership to its core. But if I worship Jesus and His mission and His vision and His teachings for my life and for my leadership within my home, the way in which I am to mutually submit to my wife and to lead her as Christ loves the church, that will begin to shape my leadership. That will begin to shape my leadership. And folks, I have got to declare this every day that I am about worshiping my God. Because I can derail this train in a moment's notice. I can have my focus on Jesus and I still have to begin every morning with Jesus and then but yet throughout the day I'm going ball, ball, ball. Everybody ever see up? It's a great movie. Ball, ball. Stay focused on the mission. God, when the Israelites were um, getting ready to enter into the land of Canaan, into the promised land, 
knew that they were going to be going into this land. They were going to be going fall, fall, fall. They were going into one of the corrupt areas. They were going into this, this pluralistic area where they could have anything they wanted in the buffet of religion. And before they enter in, God gives them one statement for them to remember that would serve sort of as a banner across them that would shape their identity. And it must be a banner across us and it must shape our identity. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, when he said this, Hear, O Israel, in other words, listen up, listen up. As you enter into this land, you need to remember this, Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's much more than just a summation of a theology of the unity of the Godhead and the Trinity. It's so much more than that. It is a declaration it is a declaration. So when they heard this, this is what they heard. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. We only have one. He is our God. Not the God of the Canaanites. We've already declared ourselves. We have our God. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. In other words, He is the one and He is the only one for me. And they had to declare this as a family. They had to declare this as a nation. And it was their statement of their identity of who He was calling them to be as His people. It was a declaration of identity because it was a declaration of their worship. And as they entered into all into the land where there were all of these options out there, all of a sudden they were going to have to be reminded the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Now what's that got to do with us? It's this. When I read that, I've got to read it this way. Here, O Schlomer family. The Lord is our God and the Lord is the one and only one for us. That is a statement of identity over the Schlomer family. It must be a statement of identity over Elam Church. It must be the statement of identity over your own family. The Lord, our God, we've already declared this. We settled this. I'm not interested in, in worshiping anyone else. This serves as a banner, a declaration, a declaration of allegiance. That is that I will renounce my own self-interest. I will renounce the cultural pull upon my life, upon my marriage. I will renounce that so I may serve, so that I may serve the needs of others. In this case, in this case, loving my wife as Christ loved the church. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. Many of you declared yourselves. Have you declared yourselves to your spouse, to your wives, to your children? Have you gone to them and said, this is going to be the banner over our home? Honey, this is going to be the banner over our marriage. 
this must be it. That we, we will worship God. And we must declare it daily. And sometimes we even need to declare it hourly. Right, men? Ball? Ball? Because we get so easily distracted. It is the object of my worship will become the cup out of which my wife drinks. It will become the cup out of which my wife is nourished into spiritual health or she becomes embittered by my own self-interests. It's that well out of which we nourish our wives and our families. So husbands, each man right here, right now, from this point forward, make the choice to declare yourselves and to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. What's the first word? Declare. The second word is love. What's the second word? Love. I choose to love her unconditionally. I choose to love her unconditionally. This is a woman's greatest need. A woman's greatest need. To love her unconditionally. That's like the air that she breathes. It's how God wired her. It's how God made her. To know that no matter what, no matter what, my husband will love me unconditionally. Now, why did God make a woman with such a need as this unconditional love? Why did He make her that way? And why did He create man with this capacity to be able to love her in such a way as unconditional love? If He declares whom He will worship. And that declaration, that object of His worship is Jesus Christ. It is this, and you get this from the context, from the Trinitarian context of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 6-4, and it's this. We are to love her as Christ loves the church, and in doing so, we become an image, a presence, a fragrance of Christ to her, which in turn draws her towards Christ. We become a representation of a spiritual reality that she cannot see with her eyes. She cannot see Christ standing before her and how He loves her unconditionally. She can't see that except in the image of her husband. Now she can experience the unconditional love of Christ through the mediation of the Holy Spirit, but she needs a representation, a physical representation of a deeper reality, and that comes in the form of a husband. He says, I want you to be my presence in your, the wife, in the, in the life of your wife. That's what I want. 
That's what I want. And as she sees this, then theoretically, at least it is God's intent, it does not always become reality because of our own rebellion, but theoretically, she is drawn to Christ. She is given an invitation to come and follow Christ more deeply. That's why when a, when a woman is married to a man who cares nothing for Christ, she flounders like a fish out of water. She's lonely. She feels abandoned. She feels alone. Because the very person who is to bring that representation to flesh and blood reality isn't. Isn't. So when this is threatened, when we fail, or when we, and we will fail, or when we refuse to do this, it shakes her to her core. There's a fascinating statement in Proverbs 30. And it's, it's incredible imagery, and it is this. Under three things, the earth trembles. And under four, it cannot bear up. Now, what's the image that you have in your mind there? It's creating an image. What is that image? What's that? Earthquake. It's like the very foundations of your life, the very foundations that you are standing on, are suddenly liquefying. It's suddenly they are no longer stable. Now what happens when you start to feel that liquid, liquefaction of the ground under which you are standing? You get scared. You want to run. Right? Because your life is threatened. Your very existence and well-being is questioned. That's the imagery that he's creating. There are three things. The earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes a king, a fool who is full of food, and an unloved woman who is married. It shakes her to her core. So we love her unconditionally, and that is we say, you know what, baby? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, I will be by your side. I will be by your side. And it gets really messy from there on out, doesn't it? But we're talking about a declaration of our mind and of our heart. He says, this is what we're going for. Every once in a while, not very often, I'll have someone tell me, I have a right to be happy in my marriage, to which I will say, whoever gave you that right? Was that a part of your wedding vows? Small print. No. No. And I know I'm just opening Pandora's box there. But I will move on. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ do that? 
Well, I know we look at the cross as the ultimate example of that, and that's a great example, but it actually started way before that point in time. It started way before that time, and we see something in the ministry of Christ that represents the sacrificial love that is an essential part of marriage. And it's this. I choose to understand her deeply. What's the first word? Second word? Third word is understand her. And some of you may be saying, oy vey. I'm not talking about understanding a woman in terms of her femininity, although that may be, that is a part of it, but I'm talking about something far deeper than that. Jesus understands us. In His love, He came and He lived among us. And He did it with a full understanding of what He was coming into. And you see this lived out in His ministry. He met each person, every person, in a way that represents what the, an understanding of their core need. You look at the woman at the well. He met her in a way that she needed Him to meet Him. He understood what was going on in her life. With the blind man, he understood what was going on in his life. You see, Jesus walking into situations fully aware of what was going on in that individual's life, and he reacted, he, he approached that person appropriately. He understood what was going on. Now, keep that in mind as I read this verse in 1 Peter 3, and I think that Peter unpacks this. He says this, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. Well, how do you be considerate? Well, the idea of that in the Greek of that word considerate, it means to dwell together, to dwell together in an understanding way. In other words, according to knowledge and understanding, you need to understand your wife. You need to understand some very important things. And guys, this is a lifelong process. This is a lifelong process. <laughs> thank God for patience. Thank, thank, thank God for wives who are willing to join us in that, right, Stan? I think it's important for us. This is something I've been thinking about and something I've discovered recently, and that is, you know, what is your wife's story growing up? What kind of home did she come from? How did that shape her? How did that shape her? How has her story shaped her hopes and her fears? And based on your understanding, what does she need from you? Let me unpack that just a little bit. Here's the story. I asked my wife if I could share this, and she said yes. Part of the way in which I was raised was when you got mad, you just let it out. I quickly learned that that was not a good way to do it. So what I did was I, when I get mad or I got stressed, I just went silent. And it wasn't but a couple of years ago, about four years ago, I was sitting with my wife and she says, something seems really wrong. And I says, I'm really wrestling with some things. Well, did I do something? I said, no, this is my stuff. And if I go and I, she wanted to talk about it. She says, if I talk to you about it right now, I will shred you. And I know I'm going to turn around. I'm going to blame everything on you. And I know in my soul that that's not the truth. But I will shred you if I tell you what I'm thinking. 
So therefore, I choose not to because it's about me, not about you. And so we went through a couple of days and finally I was able to tell her, said, this is what I was wrestling with. And it really had nothing to do with you. It had to do with how I was responding towards you. And she looked at me and she says, yeah, but you know what, honey? When you go silent on me like that, it raises all kinds of fears within me that I'm the one to blame. That it's my problem. As we explored that, that was the environment of the home in which she was raised. Whenever, whenever there was conflict, everyone went silent and she walked around on eggshells feeling like she was the one who was at fault. So in my effort to do what was right and righteous, I was actually stomping on my wife's greatest fears. She was not feeling loved. Instead, she was feeling abandoned. That's the opposite of unconditional love, is it not? Her earth was shaking. Her life was shaking. And when I understood that, I thought, wow, I didn't mean to trample on your greatest fears. So I've learned to tell her that when I'm stressed, that I just tell her what I'm wrestling with in brief detail, even though I may not always understand it, and I will sometimes say, I don't really understand what it is I'm dealing with. But it's not you. That's loving her. That's now that I have that understanding, now that I have that understanding, I can now live with my wife in a little greater, with a little greater understanding. It's important that we understand so much about our wives. And I could go on and on, but I'm already about over time. But uh, I hope to, in October, have a seminar for us that will help us understand one another in a much deeper way. So if I can pull it off, we'll have a Friday evening and a Saturday morning time where I will give you some tools and help you, um, equip you to look and, and understand your wife in a way that you've never understood her before and in help your, your, your wives help you understand your husbands in a way that you've never understood them before. And this is something that I've discovered in the last six months. Um, a tool through some coaching that I'm going through. So, okay? So, I'll just put that out there. Um, understand this, that when we live with our wives in an understanding way, we live with our wives in a way that Jesus lived among us. You know, I was thinking this week, and this was an aha moment for me, in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we see that Jesus says, you know what, come to me, I understand where you are. I'm the great high priest. I have been tempted as you have been tempted, and so therefore I'm a safe person for you to run to, and I will give you what you need as a result of that, because he understands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And as we understand our wives, then we're able to be more like Jesus to her. Um, I'll, see if I, I'll see if I can explain this. In Hebrews, I'll just read you what I wrote. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we see that Jesus understands us personally. 
and intimately. Jesus is therefore able to empathize and sympathize with our weaknesses. And therefore, Jesus is the safe person that we can run to. You understand what I'm saying? And my question for us is, men, are you trying to understand your wives? And not just what she likes or doesn't like, but understand her story and how that story has shaped her life and how you need to respond to it in like fashion so that you're not trampling on her fears. Fourth word is what? I'm sorry. First word is what? Declare. Second word is? Love. Third word is? Fourth word is? Lead. There you go. Oh, there you go. You guys are good. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We are on a mission, men. We are on a mission for Christ on behalf of our wives. And it calls us to lead her spiritually. It calls us to lead her spiritually. Now, I know this is a big Pandora's box here as well. So I I don't have time to really dive into this. And if there's enough people who email me this week and say, dig into this, then I will. Okay? But what do I mean by lead her spiritually? I mean this. I mean, you set the course for your home. You set the course for your home. Remember the banner that's to be over your home? The Lord is our God. The Lord is the one and only one for us. That's what it means to set the course for your home. You make the priorities based upon that. Based upon that. And some of us may be scratching our heads and say, well, I don't know what the priorities should be. Well, at this point, I want to have Stan Houseworth stand. I want to have uh, Dan stand. Stand. I want to have Jim D'Angelo stand. Um, you, no, I want you guys to really stand. Okay. Um, uh, and there are others. There are others. Um, but here are three men. Here are three men, gentlemen, that you can go to, and you can say, "Help me understand how to set the course for my home." Okay. Here's, and there are others. Steve Kearns, I just saw you in my good eye. Um, you know, there are men who can help you understand how to set the course for your home. When I was in seminary, there's a lot of ignorance, way too much ignorance in the world on this. I went to my Greek and Hebrew professor at Grace Seminary and I said, I've been married for six months. I said, what's it mean for me to lead my wife? And he just spoke Greek and Hebrew to me. No. <laughs> he had no idea. And he was a, doc- he had a doctorate in Greek and Hebrew. That's two. No idea. I've got to move on. But what do I do if my wife is more mature than I? And you get with one of these men. <laughs> And you just tell your wife, honey, be patient with me because I'm trying to learn. And wives, don't nag your husbands about that. All right? It's very, very debilitating to them. So you set the course for your home and you involve her in the journey. 
And what does that mean? That means you talk about it. And that is that you got homework today, okay? The homework is this. Sit down and discuss three questions. One, where do you need to grow spiritually, honey? Where do you need to grow spiritually and how can I pray for you? And how can I partner with you on that? Where do you need to grow spiritually? Where do we need to grow as a family? And as a couple? How do you think we ought to get there? How can we walk there together? I want to hear your ideas. I want to hear your ideas. And by the way, honey, I want us to check in once a week on how we are doing. Okay, You start there. Those are baby steps. You start there and you'll end up in a place that is glorious. Okay, You'll end up in a place that you want to be. But you've got to be willing to put action to it, right? Because leadership, this is self-chosen, right here, right now, from this point forward, I choose, I choose to love my wife as Christ loves the church. And And I'm here to tell you, For those who choose to do this, it will bring life to your home. It may just be one breath at a time. It may just be a little it may just be a little breeze, just a whisper of wind, but it will grow. And for whatever reason, men are scared to death to talk to their wives about these things and I have I do not understand other than it's a fear of failure it's a fear of failure but I will tell you this failure will take you to a place standing and acting and living out and leading out of a fear of failure will take you to a place you don't want to be Okay, And it may be towards the, the years of your marriage where you're in the empty nest and you look at each other and say, what do we have going for us? And all of a sudden you realize you've been going in the wrong direction for a very long time. It's better to turn it around and to say, we're going to head in the right direction. And while it may hurt to make some of those adjustments, you will end up in home in a place that you want to be. All right? Let's pray. Father, as we deal with these issues, Lord, far too quickly, Lord, there's just not enough time. Um, Even though I always take a lot of time, Lord, um, there just doesn't seem to be enough time to get really down into even greater nitty-gritty. But Lord, I pray for the older men of this church And Father, I pray for the older men that they would make themselves available to the younger men. Lord, that we may be able to raise up a generation of young men, Lord, who are passionate about their wives, who who are even more important than that, Lord, are passionate about Jesus Christ. And declare each and every day that You are the one that we will serve. And Father, we commit ourselves to that task for Your honor and glory that the presence of Christ may reign not just in this body, but in our homes. That the fragrance of Christ 
may not just be here present on Sunday mornings, but may be here in our homes Monday through Saturday as well. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.